Testament with Mr. Staines, so if Mr. Staines is dead— He trailed off with a shrug. Balfour narrowed his eyes. The banker seemed to be implying, however vaguely, that Carver was in some way responsible for Emery Staines' disappearance, an implication for which he surely did not have any proof. His attitude was very clear, and yet he had not really expressed an opinion of any kind upon which he might be faulted. The tone of his voice implied that he did not like Carver, even though his words expressed sympathy for the man's possible loss. Balfour, feeling the cowardice of this equivocation, almost became angry, but then he remembered that he was shamming. He was not going into business with Carver, and need not take his part in an argument against him. But then young Frost smothered a smile, and Balfour saw, with a sudden rush of indignation, that in fact the younger man was mocking him. Frost had not believed his false story for a moment. He knew that Balfour was not going into business with Carver. He knew that this falsehood had been fabricated to mask some other purpose. And then he added the insult of diminishment to the injury of exposure by finding Balfour amusing. It rankled Balfour to be second-guessed, but it rankled him still more to be ridiculed, especially by a man whose days were spent in a three-foot-square cubicle signing cheques in another man's name. This last was Lauderback's phrase, half-remembered from earlier that morning. It came to Balfour's mind as his own. Suddenly angry, he leant forward and curled his hands around the bars of the grill. All right, he said quietly. You listen. I'm no more going into business with Carver than you are. I think the man's a thug and a crook and all the rest of it. I'm up against him, damn it. I've got to get a twinkle on him. Something I can use. What is a twinkle? the banker asked. Oh, it's stupid. Never mind it, Balfour snapped. The point is that I'm looking to round him up. Give him over to the law. I think he skimmed a fair fortune out of some other fellow's claim. Thousands. But it's only a hunch, and I need hard evidence. I need a place to start, all right? That investment story I gave you just now is a bunch of guff. Cock and bull. He glared at the banker through the bars of the grill. What? he said after a moment. What then? Nothing at all, said Frost. He squared the papers on his desk and gave a cryptic, tight-lipped smile. Your business is your own. I wish you only luck, Mr. Balfour. The news about Emery Staines had rattled Balfour severely. Shipping crates and blackmail was one thing, he thought, but a person disappearing was quite another. That was a sombre business. Emery Staines was a good digger and much too young to die. Outside the courthouse, Balfour stood and breathed heavily for a moment. The small crowd outside the bank had dispersed to their luncheon, and the Maori man was gone. The rain had thinned to a persistent drizzle. Balfour cast his eye up and down the street, somewhat at a loss for where next to go. He felt excessively dejected. Vanished, he thought. But one did not simply vanish. The boy could only have been murdered. There was no other explanation for it if he had not been seen for two weeks. Emery Staines was easily the richest man south of the Black Sands. He owned more than a dozen claims, several of which had shafts that descended to depths of thirty feet at least. Balfour, who admired Staines exceedingly, would have guessed his age at three or four and twenty, not so young as to be unworthy of his luck, and not so old as to suggest that he might have acquired it by some less than honest means.
In fact, such a suggestion had never crossed Balfour's mind. Staines had been gifted with a thoroughly good-natured beauty, the kind that is earnest and hopeful without ever declaring itself to be so. In temper he was affable, optimistic, and delightfully quick. Even to think him dead was hateful. To think him murdered was worse. Just then, the Wesleyan chapel bell struck half-past twelve, releasing a flurry of birds. They burst out of the makeshift belfry and scattered dark against the sky. Balfour turned his face to the sound, feeling as he did so a sudden ache in his temple. His senses were turning from dull to sharp, the effects of the spirits he had consumed that morning, and the responsibilities of his situation had begun to weigh heavy upon him. He no longer felt inclined to ask questions on Lauderback's behalf. He wrapped his coat around his body, turned on his heel, and began walking towards the Hokitika spit, a place that was, for him, a habitual refuge. It was his pleasure to stand on the sand in foul weather, clutch his coat across his body, and look out past the clustered masts of the ships at anchor, swaying en masse, impelled variously by the river's rushing current, the surf, and the wind, the howling Tasman wind that stripped the bark from the trees at the beachfront and bent the scrub to crippled forms. Balfour enjoyed the fierce indifference of a storm. He liked lonely places because he never really felt alone. As he slithered down the muddy bank to the quay, the wind suddenly dropped. Smiling, Balfour peered into the mist. The rain had stolen all chance of a reflection from the wide mouth of the river, and the water was as grey and opaque as a pewter plate. The bucking masts had slowed their motion when the wind died away. Balfour watched them, calmed by their weighty roll back and forth, back and forth. He waited until they were almost still before moving on. The quay curved around the mouth of the river to meet the spit, a narrow finger of sand that was battered on one side by the white surf of the open ocean and lapped on the other by the confused wash of the river, its waters mingled now with salt and stripped of gold. Here, on the calm side of the spit, a short wharf projected from the quay. Balfour stepped down onto it, landing with a flat sole, and the structure shuddered beneath his weight. Two stevedores, quite as sodden as he was, were sitting on the wharf some twenty feet away. They started at the jolt and turned. All right, chaps, said Balfour. All right, Tom. One was carrying a brass-capped boathook. He had been using it to swipe at the gulls which were diving for their supper on the rocks below, and now he resumed this idle purpose. The other was keeping score. Balfour strolled up behind them, and for a time nobody spoke. They watched the moored vessels pitch back and forth, and squinted out through the rain. You know what the trouble is, Balfour said presently. Down here, any man can make himself over, make himself new. What's an alias, anyway? What's in a name? Pick it up as you pick up a nugget. Call this one Wells, this one Carver. One of the stevedores glanced around. You got a quarrel with Francis Carver? No, no. Balfour shook his head. Quarrel with a man called Wells? Balfour sighed. No, there hasn't been a quarrel, he said. I'm wanting to find out a thing or two, that's all. But quiet, on the sly. The gull returned. The stevedore swiped again and missed.